Hello and welcome to episode 13 of School for Disruptors. You know, when Kimberly and I sit down to record these episodes, we normally have a word in mind that we're going to talk about, and sometimes we end up talking about something completely different because we always want to leave space for what's on our mind and what's on our hearts, and today was one of those days. It is January 16th. I'm recording this introduction the same day that we recorded this episode, and a day before this episode is going to be released. We're only a week and a half out from the insurrection at the Capitol, and this week is the inauguration of President Joe Biden, and there's a lot happening. Um, Kimberly and I felt like today was a good day to talk about America, and in turn, we ended up talking about a whole host of other things, including leadership and reconciliation and responsibility so, 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 so many things that are on our hearts and minds, and we hope that this episode can be a good conversation starter for wherever you're at in your heart and mind, and we hope you enjoy it. What happens when two boss women link up for sisterhood and perspective? The School for Disruptors, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Kimberly McLon and Dr. Sarah Goolish. This dope digital space is dedicated to vulnerable conversations, about self-awareness, self-definition, and of course, all kinds of disruption. Listen as we inspire each other, and we hope you. Okay, so how do you how do we define America? I think America is is it's so interesting because hey, I think that so much of it is mythology and illusion. So it's like, what do you, how do you, how do you, how do you make sense? How do you wrap in a nice little box something that's so rooted in half truths and mistruths and, and just absolute lies, you know, like, and I think that that's why so many people right now are having this moment of cognitive dissonance of this, like not being able to wrap their heads around what they perceive as a threat against the country, because that, and I'm talking specifically about white male, white men, like, I mean, so we can talk about white women, but I'm talking, so we can talk about white folk broadly, but. I think that there's this notion that the greatest narrative of America is rooted in this idea of these noble men who set out to do something that was brave and in order to make it happen, acted without any sense of ethics. And I think that we focus so much on the bravery that we ignore the ethics. And that's been a part of the the sickness of America ever since, is that we just we want to focus on the, 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 these false narratives and ground ourselves in them at the expense of actually talking about truth. And and that only that what that does is it serves to like protect it protects the privilege and it protects the it protects the 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 class structure, but it's at the cost to everyone whose backs that's built upon. I heard something the other day about how um when it comes to conspiracy theories what's been really effective is stringing together narratives that are deep within all the collective conscious consciousness. So this idea that it's things that we already feel comfortable with so that if they're put together in a way that is just slightly outside of what we know and believe to be true, we're more likely to latch onto it. And it was just talking kind of like about the psychology of believing in conspiracy theories and what gets you to the point where you're pulling into something. Um, and the idea of like a selective narrative for history, that wasn't even 
that wasn't even part of my thinking until I got to college. And we read that book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me. I think that's what it's called, where it's about, you know, here's what you were taught about history. Here's what actually happened. Um, I remember being really, I don't know, I guess just like blindly accepting that whatever was reported in the history books was just, it's fact. It's unbiased. It's just reporting. And then to read something that was like, no, there, this was a selective narrative um, was really eye-opening for me. But I wonder if what your experience was, like, if you always felt like the narratives you were being given were selective. Always. Always, yeah. always, always. And I think it's because, um, I mean, my parents were were very, um, they were very rooted in, in, in language around, around injustice. And, and maybe they didn't, I don't, I don't have any like conversation, I don't have any memory of being sat down and then being like, we're going to talk today about oppression. We're going to talk today about injustice. We're going to talk today about white supremacy. But what they did tell me about was they talked about the brutality of slavery. They talked about the brutality of the civil rights movement. They talked about figures that were defined as criminals, but who were doing important work like Frederick Douglass and, and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. So I think because I had, and so this is what the thing about narratives, narratives are built on characters. And I think because the, the narrative I was given was rooted in a different set of characters with a different set of core values, it made it much more um, challenging for me to just accept a, her, a, this noble vision of the, of the men who have, who had always had t- taken and held power in this, in this larger um, story of America. And I think that that's why so many of us are, why we don't always even speak the same language is because our narratives aren't the same. And so when we talk about this idea and that this is what pol- some, some politicians right now are talking about, we need to unify and unity is what we need. Even, even the president-elect's talking about this idea that we need to unify that a unity only comes after an airing out. Unity is a part of a healing. And if I get cut and I have a wound, and I don't let that wound get any air. If I just try to quickly throw something on there and cover it up, I don't treat it. I don't clean it. I just, I'm just, we're not going to deal with it. That it's just going to come together and heal on its own. We're not going to put a salve on there. Like, what are you talking about? That is, that's not how you get to meaningful healing, even in the, the, the apparatus of any body. And America is a body. And, and the body will only heal, which we know it's suffering from this massive sickness. We can call it a cancer. You know, we can call it a, I don't, I don't even know. What's that thing that happens when like you, you stay out in the freezing cold and then like everything loses blood? <laughs> Hypothermia. <laughs> I don't know if it's like some, some, some muscle rot. I don't know what's going on in this body, but it is sick. And this idea that we're just going to jump straight to unity is why... We're going to have this persistent sense of frustration, particularly from BIPOC people and white allies, that we're not doing the work of addressing the wound. Sorry for yelling, y'all, but this is really, this is just, it It just, it, it just, I'm tired. I am tired. I am so tired of, of this dancing, of this skirting, of this avoidance. It's conflict avoidance. And it's like, we're, why can't people see that healthy relationships require the working through of conflict? Hmm. I think because t- 2020 was also the year of statements. <laughs> it was the year of uh, organizations, companies figuring out how to write a statement that says nothing and says many things all at the same time, which you and I have talked about. 
And we've spent so much energy on how to say something that makes us sound like we're not terrible people without actually having to do the hard work of figuring out what that airing out would look like. And that's because there's a failure of leadership. And it's not to say that there aren't leaders. What I mean is we keep electing people to the, we keep, and, and let, me, let me clarify this word electing. We keep elevating people either through celebrity or political appointment into positions of power and influence who are not capable within themselves because they haven't resolved within themselves their own position on these things so that they can actually lead with a sense of vulnerability and transparency and freaking courage and freaking courage. And so what we get are a bunch of, of people who are can only talk from these empty sound bites that for folks who know what's up, it's not enough. And it's not moving anything anywhere. Right. It, it like it still is. A, it still functions to protect the status quo. And we see that. And, I'm, and I know for me, I'm seeing that in school districts, plural, across the country, particularly in predominantly white school districts, where there's a failure of leadership to just say, I, I acknowledge white supremacy. This is what I want to hear. And, then, you know, I think that this is the other thing. It's like we got to be clear, too. It's like, what do we need to hear? What are the words people need to say? Not the statements. What are the words that first need to be expressed to get to healing? I want folks to say, I have, I've come to understand how white supremacy functions in our society. I've done my own independent scholarship outside of what I got from school, which was admittedly ineffective, inefficient, and problematic. And because I have educated myself, I now understand that white supremacy permeates every part of our institutions. And the only way we're going to dismantle it is if we first acknowledge it. And our silence is a, an act of condoning it. That's what I want to hear. And until they say that, I don't want to hear nothing they have to say. And that's where I am on that, Sarah. <laughs> well, I think what you're getting at, too, is that we, it's, we're operating on surface level in so many areas. And I, I was thinking about this um, with my husband over, you know, the course of the heated political uh, landscape that was happening around the election and realizing that, you know, we have conversations with people that will never go anywhere because if we really pull back the layers at core, our philosophies, we're, we're, we're operating from a different, um, we're operating from a different group of facts <laughs> that we believe in. We're also operating from a different standpoint of what we hope comes from the conversation. There are so many things about, uh, where we're, moving from and speaking from at our core, that will mean that the words that we say, nothing is ever going to get resolved because we haven't peeled back the layers. And and so we had a few conversations where we were trying to peel back the layers and say, okay, well, what is the goal of this conversation? What is the goal of this conversation? Where are we trying to go with this? And also, what do you believe about X, Y, and Z at its core? And then once you put that out there and you realize, oh, we're not even we're not even operating from the same plane at all. So this is going to be really ineffective unless we can, you know, hash through that other stuff that got us to where we are. Um, and I think that's what's hard is it's like, you know, what you're what you're looking for, you're looking for an acknowledgement of something that is systemic and something that is deep rooted and nuanced. And uh, cannot be easily <laughs> fixed with a mission statement, but that's so hard to do. But 
I'm, I'm, it shouldn't be hard to do, but it hasn't been done for the majority of people for the majority history of America. Yeah. And I think that that's a, that's also still a failure of, it's a failure of a lot of things, right? We could talk about, we can talk about church communities. We can talk about spiritual communities. So not just isolating that to, to church communities. We can talk about public education as, as like not doing what they need to do in terms of hiring teachers who understand things. But I think that the reasons why these things haven't in part moved is because there hasn't been an acknowledgement from the top of a mission statement that's explicit, where people know when you show up, this is what it is. So instead, people come in and they, they, they grow through these systems and they're not, they're, not, they're not challenged from the core foundational beliefs about what needs to change. And, and I think that what we, what we have the power to do, because there's so much you're right, like there's so much we don't have the power to do. We have the power to do what you're talking about, which is in all the spaces that we are, to be the voices of the push towards something better. That's, that's, that's a, we can't change the entire system per se, but we can, we can individually progress the conversation in the spaces that we occupy. And, and so while, you know, we can push the failure out onto the leaders, that's a failure, that maybe, arguably, that's a failure of us, where we're not saying, okay, what are we doing? You know, like, we're, it's hard to stand in the hot seat and be like, okay, we're in a faculty meeting, we're in a, we're in a, a, a conference setting, we're in a, you know, a Sunday school conversation or a Sunday, you know, Bible study conversation or a, a, sun, a, a Sabbath day conversation and be like, okay, so what are we doing? What are we doing in here, y'all? Like, what are we doing when it comes to these things? These things are happening. It's on my heart. I need to understand where do we stand? And I need to figure out who's with me in this pushback. That's where I struggle. I don't struggle with my nucle- nuclear family, like with my children, obviously, or with the kids that we teach. I feel really comfortable having those hard conversations. It's when I feel like I'm in a space where there's people in power over me that I clam up like in a faculty meeting that terrifies me and I hate that it terrifies me you know I wish that I could shake that feeling off and just say what I believe to be true and get more bold and because really the the things that I want to say in those moments are things that are advocating for our children what do you want to say I think if you could just say, say really what you want to say, what do you want to say? I th- there have been many times where I've just wanted to say, unmute. Hey, why aren't we talking about X, Y, and Z? What is the X, Y, and Z? Right now, the X, Y, and Z is um, students feeling scared for being fill in the blank. Children for being students of color, students feeling that's today. That's what I'm feeling. Um, Not just our black students and brown students, you know, all of our students of color, students feeling scared because they're students of color. The other thing I want to say is fill in the blank. Why are we not talking about the immense pressure we're putting on students when their mental health is crumbling? So I think there's a couple of things that I felt bubbling within me and I just, I don't say it. I think we, I think that this is, this is, this is a conversation to me. This is one, one particular moment. And we have these moments when we're talking and I, and that I really appreciate is when, when there's like a vulnerability to push each other, to practice saying the hard thing. 
Yeah, that was hard. <laughs> to pre- but it's a pre- it's like you got to you have to like it's a muscle that you stretch, and the more you the more you you practice saying the hard thing in spaces that feel safe, the the more you assure yourself that what you're saying has validity, that your feelings matter, and then it becomes easier when you're talking to people who presumably have power over you to affirm within yourself that what I have to say matters. And what you do with it is what you do with it. And that's outside of me. But shame on me. This is how I feel. Shame on me if I don't say anything. It's a, it's a, it's a growing into. It's a yeah. growing into. And I think that, I know for me, I think, I've, and we've talked about this before, I've, I've felt for so long that I lived outside of the margins of what was the dominant culture that it, and, and there are many, many years and I tried to assimilate into that dominant culture. Many, many years. And I tried to, you know, when I was very comfortable with, never considered not straightening my hair, where it was just like, I straightened my hair all the time. And then even when I started straightening my hair and I, and then when I, I should back up, when I stopped relaxing my hair and I just went to straightening my hair, it was still years before I was like, I'm just going to wear my hair as it is without it being constantly straightened. And that was a very conscious and, and a very like, visible way of telling people outside of me that I'm okay with all the things that make me who I am. And that is hard, but it's a practice. It took me five, it took me literally five years of straightening my hair every three weeks to get to the point of being like, you know what? I'm just not going to straighten my hair every three weeks. And it took me five years. And the only reason why I even got to the point of saying, I'm not going to perm my hair anymore is because I became a mom. And it was just like, okay, I, I have to feel like what you said. I feel a sense of shame that I'm telling my daughter that she's beautiful the way that she is, and yet I am straightening my hair all the time. And that's what she's seeing me. I'm giving her this mixed message that I have to, I have to reconcile. And that's what I think what we, what we all have to do in this moment is step into a deeper reconciliation of our inner voices. I love how you said, like, taking off the mute button. We have to practice that, taking off the mute button. Otherwise, when does it change? Who's going to change it? What do we, who, how long do we, are we going to wait for the Sarahs of the world and the, you know, the Kimberleys of the world to push each other to be ever more courageous? you saying this to me I'm like for so long I've been thinking what could we do you know if 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 others aren't going to do it what could we do it shouldn't have to be you doing it Kimberly you've been doing it for years what could we do and even just you sharing that with me I'm I feel like my brain is spinning like yeah how can we how can we start meeting with people who feel the same way and having these courageous conversations and practicing having courageous conversations. Um, and I love I love that you are talking about how it is a constant it, it's a constant um, piece of growth. It's it's a journey. It's not a state of being all the time. Um, and we've heard so many guests on this podcast talk about that. For me, that's so encouraging for someone to say, yeah, I really felt uncomfortable with X, Y, and Z, but I was afraid to disrupt at that time or I wasn't ready, but now here's how I'm moving towards it. Um, I think it's encouraging because for those of us who feel like, well, I feel this way, but I'm not strong enough to stand up and say it or do X, Y, and Z, I guess I never will. I think it's much more realistic to say, no, it's it's a practice and it's 
the target is going to continue to change. And I, I think that that's part of the, it's almost like a group therapy approach where it's like you get together with the people who you care about and people where you, and even if you don't, it, even caring is like actually not, I don't necessarily think the most important word per se. It's people who you feel safe and affirmed by. And then you all practice saying, in my workspace, I really want to say this. In my, in my, my creative group, I really want to say this. And you say those hard things in the, in the safety of people who are going to affirm how you feel and you practice it. And then you go into those, you return back to those creative spaces, to those work groups, to those, those religious, spiritual communities, wherever you are. And then you, you have a stronger muscle to be like, okay. And then the sweat isn't as severe and the anxiety isn't as high because you've at least let it escape your lips. You formed a thought and you've pushed it out into the world. And this is, you know, as women who've given birth, this is what birth is. Birth is the production of sweat and anxiety. It is work. You don't just, you know, some women are able to just boop, pop out a baby, you know? Hate them. Hate them. <laughs> that was probably you. It, it was not necessarily, I don't think. Um, yeah, right. Okay, continue. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, this metaphor of birthing is what this practice of speaking hard things is. It is, it is actually giving life to things that need to live outside of you because they are beautiful and true. Do you know, I had the most incredible experience about two weeks ago. Um, I was meeting with a counselor who was walking through saying hard things to children. And I was, I felt like I was getting a free workshop in, in how to, how to speak with children. She was so good about affirming pain but not shying away from saying the hard thing and realizing that in saying the hard thing, there might be backlash on her, but just really standing in that space and saying, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay here, but I'm going to say the hard thing and I'm going to be here to support as we work through what this hard thing means. And as a mom, I was like, this is what I'm terrible at doing. I, I feel like I always want to um, placate things or just say, it's okay because this is going to happen or let's redirect or let's distract. Let's not actually sit in what's hard and how much strength it takes to, to, to be a leader really. And this is, um, when we see beautiful leadership happen, when someone is not afraid to stand up and say that hard thing, but then they, they don't walk away. They stay for that painful process of working through the ramifications of what that means and how it will make people feel and in supporting the people that they're leading, even if it's going to be unpopular with some of the people that they're leading. And so, um, I'm not, I'm not wired that way. I think I'm, I'm wired to just be comfortable. And I, th be I think we're all wired to be comfortable. I think that at the and sometimes for some of us, I think that being comfortable is is letting it, letting fire just go. You know, like that's part of like for me as I get older. Maybe it's older. Maybe it's something I've been probably nurturing for a long time. My place of comfort is like this is what it is. This is how I feel. This is what I believe to be true. This is where I read it. This is where I heard it. This is where I saw it. And I think that we we all have to figure out, you know, how do we work through that place of of what makes us feel comfortable and step into this, this step on to join that stream of people on a journey to figuring out how to challenge this notion, particularly of America.
this mythology, particularly of America, because until that happens in small rooms, it ain't gonna happen in big spaces. It's not happening in big, and not enough big spaces. It's, you know, there, and that's not to say it's not, you know, the change hasn't happened and that, you know, that there hasn't been some really meaningful movement, but there's also been a very meaningful backlash. And that backlash is gonna pick up steam unless more of us lift our voices. Mm. So what does this look like for you? Yeah, what does it look like for you right now, all the things that you're feeling? Um, it's feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm moving into a phase where I'm feeling less, a little less concerned about other people's discomfort, where I don't want to sacrifice my comfort, my sense of safety, to privilege even a room full of people's sense of comfort and safety. Like, I'm, I'm no longer of this place of like, okay, you know, like, you should just, you will, and you be quiet, and you don't speak what you know to be, what, what, what you believe needs to be said and heard, because you saying, and he, you saying it might disrupt the peace of other people's sense of ease. And it's like, at some point, it's like, so I'm just going to be the only one in this room, or one of five people in this room, or one of eight people in this room, who's, who's feeling a sense of outrage, or shame, or frustration, you know, like, I, no, eight of us matter, even if it is only eight of us. The eight of us, are, we matter too. And so we can either just choose and the eight of us to be quiet and just let it ride, or we can be like, no, I'm speaking for us, me and this seven. And what you do with this is what you do with it. That's how I'm feeling today. And I hope it's a feeling that carries me into the next week because there are some, as, as new stories come out of, of things that I find absolutely disgusting, I'm, I'm not going to just, I'm, it's not even just, and this is where it's, I don't want it to feel and this is, this is where it's going to tricky, I think, for me, Sarah, is that I don't want it to feel like I'm leveraging or uh, moving into this place of, like, personal attacks, but I'm going to be attacking the body apparatus. Like, if it's the, if it's like, if it's the CEO and the administrative circle, then so be it. I'm calling out the administrative circle because that's, I mean, where else? Otherwise, we're just, I'm continuing to talk in abstracts about this vague sense of we. No, it ain't always we. I'm not a part of that we. It's y'all. It's you. So let's talk about what you do and what you don't do. I think that's why being called into leadership is such a profound calling if we really take it seriously, because we do have to take responsibility for the people that are under us and the people that we're caring for and the people that we are directing. And um, I think there has been a pervasive lack of responsibility. I'm reading Dare to Lead right now by Brene Brown. It's been really helpful for me. And yeah, and just like, because, you know, as a business owner, I, it's been really convicting because I read things and I'm like, oh, I do that. Like not the good stuff, the bad stuff. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I need to be, a, I want to be a better leader. I really do. And so this book has been challenging me and stretching me in a lot of ways to think about leadership. But I was having a conversation with one of my authors last week and she was saying, um, you know, I, I said, I have a project for you. And she's like, anything you say, I will do. I like trust in you 100%. I have more faith in you than I have in my own school administration. And I said to her, I'm like, I appreciate that, but you shouldn't have 100% faith in me because I will fail you at some point. And she wrote back and said, and that's why I want to be under you. 
And it made me realize like, we don't say that enough. You know, what we see from leadership is usually this false sense of, well, I am, you know, 100% in control. I'm 100% right. And what I say goes, and there's going to be no sense of vulnerability. There's going to be no sense of admitting fault. There's going to be no sense of um, self-reflection. And so it, it becomes this like locked gate. And there's no responsibility taken. And when you are in charge of many human beings, that's what you signed up for. I think that's what I get frustrated sometimes. It's like, you're in a place of leadership. You signed up to lead people, to lead nuanced people who come from lots of different backgrounds with lots of different feelings and thoughts and, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And it's going to be messy, and you have to accept that and also take the responsibility of the mess that happens. Yes. And I want them to feel some heat because when you get all those flavors together and you're making a, you know, sometimes those flavors don't always, they don't, they don't always jive to your point. And sometimes, you know, like you have to realize that when that you're saying you have to stand in the fire sometimes, like, why do they, why, why, who, who thinks as a leader that they're never going to have to have to experience the discomfort of people pushing back on either their leadership style or their or their 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 failings as a leader. They and and I think we fail them as people who are part of teams when we don't encourage them to grow by pushing back on and giving them feedback on where they need to do better. We fail them too if we talk about reciprocity and relationships. So yeah, no, they need to hear the real, and we need to figure out ever more language if it's in an email if that's what feels safe if it's in a phone call if that's what feels safe if it's in a i'm gonna run into you in, in our passings you know from six feet away and i'm gonna tell you from six feet away with my mask on this is how i feel because i don't want to do it in the large group setting or we need to just say in a large group setting i'm airing this out so it's so everyone knows exactly what was said i don't want there to be any miscommunication and this is where i am on it i don't be any miscommunication about how I felt or where I stood or what I said, y'all know what it is. I uh, I made a mistake yesterday. I made a mistake. Um, I won't go into the details. It was like a kind of like managerial thing. <laughs> I mean, I make mist- I make lots of mistakes every day, but I'm talking about one mistake I made yesterday. Um, <laughs> so I made this mistake with my business and it affected a couple of my authors and I had to reach out to them and say like, look, this here's a mistake I made. Um, I apologize. It's going to inconvenience you. And um, here's my plan. Yeah, I'm sorry about this. Here's my plan to fix it. And... But you know, it's funny. Um, so my friend who is one of my authors as well called me to give me a hard time and she did it in a playful way, but really like the truth is she could have given me a hard time and said, this is really frustrating and inconvenient. And I found myself in that moment, like wanting to make it about me and like, to be like, this is actually hard on me. Like you should feel bad for me. And I was like going back to my dare to lead you know, notes that I was taking. And I'm like, no, I am the leader. I made a mistake that is affecting people. And it's going to be a little bit painful. And I need to absorb that. And instead of making it about my emotions, I need to be there to support them. And it just made me realize how wired we are to just be self-protective. 
So when we're in that leadership role, like as soon as people pull on us or try to stretch us or grow us, there there has to be so much inner work to really hear it and accept it and acknowledge our role in the repair like you're talking about. When that wound has been aired out, when that wound is open, how are we going to put on the solve? Versus saying like, oh, well, you think that's bad. Let me show you this twisted ankle I got last week, you know, instead of making about our own wounds and saying like, yes, let's address that one. I had a part in that wound. I can see what my part is. And so I'm going to have a part in healing it. It won't heal the full thing, but I will at least take part in trying to, you know, repair some of the damage that I caused. So hard, but so necessary. And again, we have so many people in leadership who were never prepared to be leaders. Yep. Agreed. And this bridge, and you know, it seems like we're, we're kind of like talking about two words today. We're talking about America and we're also talking about this word leadership is, is that in order for there to be a, a better way forward for this, this, this country, there has to be this private exercise of each of us trying to figure out how to flex our healing muscles so that we can lead in small ways in the places where we occupy so that we can feed a larger energy, a larger movement to a collective healing. And that is, that's also a part of it. That's also a part of it is like, you know, like so much of the, you know, so I'm like, stop talking about unity. If so much of the healing that needs to take place is on a personal level, and then that needs to be pushed away from us onto larger platforms, the, you know, other spaces in more and wider circles. And, and no one has taught us how to, I don't think that no one has, has anyone has taught us how to do that. Hmm. Yeah, and why – it is hard when we're talking about unity because I think most people feel like, why do I want to unify myself with this person over there who I feel so hurt by? Not only that, that person over there is dangerous. Like, look at what they say in their text messages. Look what they post in their DMs. Look at what they wear on their shirts. They are advocating for violence, and they're expressing things that, to me, sound sociopathic. You want me to go play and share and hang out with people who – who have expressed a, an absolute and utter commitment to violence and chaos? Why would I do that? Why? Why? Why are we asking people to do that? You, the, the, that's that's not that's that's an un, that's putting the burden of the fix on the people who have been tortured and terrorized. And I resent that. Let me be very. I resent that, Sarah. Telling me I got to go, and now it's my job to you know. And don't get me wrong. You know, like some of the greatest teachers in human history have told us to turn the other cheek. They've told us that in, in many languages. Turn the other cheek. And maybe I'll get there in next week's episode. But today, I don't want to play. <laughs> That's what I love about you is that, <laughs> you know, one of the things you said you're stepping into is just being who you are in this moment. And I think saying like, this is me, this is what I'm feeling, maybe, <laughs> maybe it'll change or morph into something else. But right now, this is where I'm at. And I think, I think you bring up such, such an important po point, which I also, this is something that was a game changer for me when it came to reconciliation, which is when there has been, when someone has been harmed, there is always a cost. And someone will be paying for it. And if you 
really want to reconcile, it's not just about an apology. It's about sharing the burden of whatever that cost was. And that, I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, so I had a really bad, he'll probably listen to this. If you're listening to this, hi, David. (laughs) I had a really tumultuous relationship with my brother growing up. Bad. Like, we did not like each other. We fought all the time. Um, We always were, like, stressing out my parents because nothing they would do would work. We probably would have said that we hated each other. And um, I remember doing all this work. Like, after I was an adult, I was married on reconciliation and um, trying to figure out, like, what damage we've done to other people that we might not know about. And I remember approaching him. I was so mad at him for something that he had done to me. But I remember approaching him and just saying, like, have I wronged you? Tell me how I've wronged you. And he had all of the stuff he had been holding on to for years that I didn't even know about. And it was a kind of a breakthrough conversation with us. Um, fast forward now. We run a business together. We talk every day. We're really close. But it was it was such a game changer for me in just realizing, like, we're so blinded in not realizing our role a lot of times. Um, But we're also not asking to find out what our role has been. And I think that's something right now that I'm craving. I'm craving people in leadership and people just in general to be saying more of what is my part in causing pain and how do I take on some of that burden? When you say you want people, who comes to mind? Who are you thinking about? I think – I mean, I think it would be easy for me to say white people, but I think in a deeper way, anyone who doesn't feel uncomfortable right now <laughs> or doesn't feel threatened in any way – and I know people are feeling threatened for a whole bunch of different reasons, but – um if if we are feeling safe and comfortable right now in America, we need to be asking those questions because many people in our midst are not safe and are not comfortable. But why should people even care? I, I that that is a question that becomes for me is like you know, how do we, how do we even push the conversation more strategic, strategically forward by, by trying to figure out what, how do we get people to even care? Cause what actually, and, and, and can we, can we get people to even care? Because then that's, that's another way of thinking about the work ahead. Like, how do we, you know, we talk about reconciliation and, and I have my, I think my opinion on it might be a little bit different from yours about where that needs to start and, and what direction that needs to flow. Um, that where? Where does it need to start? This is the soul of white folks. This is the work that needs to be done in the souls of people who are not seeing the suffering that is that exists and that they are protected from. And I think that this, and this is a conversation about who we elect, who we appoint, who we hire, the function of police. It's all of those questions are rooted in white for me. This, and you know, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book a hundred years ago almost about the souls of black folks, right? Now this is about the souls of white folks. What, what, what's, what, what are we doing here? What yeah. are we doing here? What happened in the, at the Capitol last week was not about a movement around black folks saying we need 
We need to be heard. We feel like our voices are being denied. We feel like this government has failed us. We feel like, you know, we're under attack. That wasn't what happened. So, so the, 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 the energy that is causing so much disruption right now, that's what we need to address. We need to address that energy, that, that massive energy that is causing so much chaos. And the 40 and, the, and, and all of those people who are comfortable with that. So how do we convince, do, is it worth trying to bring them into conversation? If we do bring them into conversation, what needs to be said? Those are the things that me and my own desire to lead, that's what I'm thinking about. Mm. Or is it just like, you know, like let them, let them be who they are and, and, then, and then what happens to the quote unquote union? It's such a it's such a hard question for me too. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this <laughs> for a while. I think so much of why I think reconciliation needs to happen and all my beliefs about even humanity in general really stem from my faith. And so I think that's also when we're talking about like your philo- philosophical underpinning or your worldview, if someone next to me doesn't believe that human beings have value or are precious inherently, then it's going to be really hard to have a conversation about why we should treat people a certain way. So I agree with you. It's like, how do we even, how do we convince people that this matters if we're operating from completely different worldviews on what we think of human beings in general? Because I think if we're willing to see humans as things, (laughs) Um, it changes our language. It changes the way we approach everything. And so that's really hard for me. I feel like that's something I'm going to need to think about for a while. And then, um, there was another point that you made that I was thinking about and now it completely left my brain, (laughs) but, oh yeah, here, here's the other thing I was thinking about. It's like, so at least in my experience and having some of these tough conversations with people that I love, I feel like a lot of the people that have strong opinions about folks who are different from them have not spent a lot of time with the folks that they have these strong opinions about. And so, yeah. And so that's a whole nother issue, but I do think in that sense there can be powerful movement by getting people together to hear each other's stories. And I don't know what that means. And I know that might sound like, you know, a pie in the sky, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do believe that if we really hear someone's story and learn about who they are, it is very hard to see them as not human. I think, again, when I come back to this, I think about this as a mother. I think about it as a teacher. I should be thinking about it as a podcaster. I think I should be thinking about the fact that hopefully – I hope that, you know, even we have students of ours that listen to this and feel encouraged and feel inspired and feel maybe heard or seen. Um, 
I think for, as a mother, what I tell the kids, I need to, I need to fill in the gaps of our true histories. I need to do a lot of work to, um, to, sh- to kind of peel back the onion, I guess I should say, when we see things to have, you know, deeper and harder conversations and not just give the easy, comfortable answer. Um, I think I also need to tell the kids that their comfort in growing up as white middle-class children is not accidental. (laughs) Um, That there are a lot of contributing factors that brought them to where they are, and it's not just about their mom and dad working hard and getting a college degree. That there is so much more that contributes to them having privilege and acknowledging those things and then acknowledging the great sense of responsibility we have because we have privilege and how we're going to spend our money, our energy, our time um, to to ensure that we are not hoarding privilege and that we are not wasting privilege. And because I think it's so important that the that, – that- I'm, I'm, I'm torn because like, you know, we're talking, what do we tell the kids about America? Everything you just said is so on point. It's like, it's, it's like, girl, you, you dropped some gems there that <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to let that marinate. Um, and, and I guess at the same time, I, when I think about, you know, the other side of that, which is, I think the other beauty of us coming together for this, for this project is us having these two very, you know, similar and distinct perspectives. I think that, you know, we need to tell the kids about America. We need to do all the things you just said. We need for, for black kids and BIPOC kids to understand um, that, that they come from a struggle and that that struggle is a persistent one and that, that they can't allow the, the continued existence of that struggle to make them feel defeated. We have to tell them to be encouraged. We have to tell them to be clear in their compass that, 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 they, have, that they have worth that their ideas and their creativity and their feelings matter, that their votes matter. We have to give them a message of of hope and of resistance so they can survive a landscape that is so fraught with landmines set up by design to see them fail. And I think we have to tell those kids that message on the other side. And and then we we tell the kids that to hold on to their their sense of optimism and and their sense of courage because whatever this new dawning of this new version of this country looks like, and there can be one, that it will be as much crafted by what they do and say as it has been crafted by what we've done and said. The School for Disruptors is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, produced and edited by us with music from Laura Crochet. You can catch up with O'Shea on Instagram at It's Pronounced O'Shea, and you can also catch us there at School for Disruptors, or send us an email, schoolfordisruptors at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.